0: Welcome to a special episode of the Crossway Podcast. I'm Matt Tully, and today we have an important interview to share with you. Bob Catillo is a medical doctor who currently serves as a physician for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless in Denver, Colorado. He's also on the faculty at Denver Seminary, works as an assistant clinical professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and previously served as a medical missionary to the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's also the author of Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age, which Crossway is currently pleased to offer as a free ebook to all listeners of the Crossway podcast. Stick around till the end of the show to learn how to download the ebook for free, and then we would encourage you to share the ebook with your friends, family, and churches. Today, Bob and I discuss the current coronavirus pandemic. He explains what's currently happening in the U.S. and around the world offers a broader perspective on how we should think about this virus in light of history and our Christian faith, and offers godly, practical advice to all Christians as we seek to trust God and love others well in these uncertain times. Let's get started. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast.
1: And thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here, Matt.
0: So as we mentioned in the intro to the show You currently serve on the faculty at Denver Seminary, and you're an assistant clinical professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, Uh, and then you also serve as a physician for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless in Denver. And I I know Colorado has had a fair number of confirmed cases of this new coronavirus, what is now being referred to as COVID-19. Are you involved in any on-the-ground efforts to help slow the spread of this virus? And if so, what are you seeing right now?
1: Uh, Well, Matt, my primary uh, interaction with the uh, change in events that's been brought on by the COVID-19 virus is as a patient caregiver for um, primarily homeless populations with the um, Stout Street Health Center and the St. Francis Center of the Coalition for the Homeless. And so um, I've sort of been a a part of the uh, process of gearing up, which has been a, a big job to prepare for so many unknowns, so many uncertainties, but certainly a desire to be able to uh, test appropriately and then uh, properly to, uh, uh, I don't know if the right word is quarantine, but at least to protect uh, those who are potentially contagious uh, from others who are not yet contagious. And uh, you can imagine how big a deal that is when you're dealing with a homeless population who tend to return to a very uh, intensely crowded place. And so, uh, we've been doing things like trying to find hotel rooms temporarily for people to be in until we know that they're COVID-19 free. Uh, so yeah, we've been, we've been watching this. We've been following this. We've been, uh, every day, I'm sure you're getting it too. Uh, there's just a new piece of information. It's just becoming ever more restrictive. And, uh, we're all looking and wondering and hoping that this, uh, epidemiological experiment of trying to, uh, keep people in place will, uh, achieve some success.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think for many of us, it was, it's was it been surprising, even shocking, how quickly things have seemed to escalate, uh, not just in the US, but even around the world. When did you first realize that this virus was going to be a big deal?
1: Well, I don't think we probably were aware, I, I think most of us were not aware until it left China and hit Italy. I think when uh, it was in China, I think everybody thought, well, maybe we're just gonna be able to keep it there. And yes, there's an incredible number of cases, but they're using these very strong draconian measures to keep it in place. I think when we saw Italy just explode with the number of cases and realize how uh, potent the contagiousness of this virus is, uh, I think that's when we took note. And I think that it's now just a matter of watching and seeing how what is the inevitable is happening that the case that pretty much every country pretty soon will have cases.
0: Hmm. Yeah, were you surprised yourself at how quickly things progressed as after it kind of broke out of China? Was that surprising to you as a, a medical professional?
1: Well, yes, I think so. Because I mean, I've I'm a family physician, but I've been involved a lot with infectious diseases in my life just because of working with underserved populations where there's a lot more contagion and then also working in Africa for quite a while. So I was, I've was i always followed the uh, epidemics that have transpired. And I guess I was looking at the, the SARS in 2001, and I uh, and and was uh, 2003, I'm sorry. And then also the, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, MERS in 2012. And that that never spread like this one. So I think I was thinking, oh, it's gonna be something like that. Those were coronaviruses. This is a coronavirus. But it just goes to show you that uh, each, each virus is novel in its behavior. And so I think it took a lot of people by surprise, including me.
0: Yeah, we've all been hearing that term. It's a novel coronavirus. Um, I think many people might be surprised to learn that it's actually, that these other viruses that we've seen spread in the past, SARS and MERS, uh, were also coronaviruses help us understand the landscape of how all these things relate to one another?
1: Well, I, I mean, it's just it's just um, these these viruses share the same microbiological family. They're all coronaviruses. Corona meaning crown, so it's just it's a, it's the way it looks under the electron microscope. But many of these coronaviruses we've known for years have been the cause of common cold. So there are coronaviruses of many varieties, and they have very differing of uh, Ways that they function, I think what we are aware of is that viruses are constantly in a a antigenic change and in a mutational change, and so these viruses change. And when they change, and they change quite rapidly because uh, viruses are mutating at an incredibly rapid rate, they achieve a different kind of virulence, a different kind of spreadability, and uh, we we have to learn each time what it's going to be like. Now, I think in this case if it did come from an animal source uh, and then it it affected the human population, that's happened before, but we always hoped that it wouldn't be human-to-human transmission. And I think for a short time in the beginning, they thought, oh, it's not gonna be human-to-human. It's only just gonna be animal-to-human. But in fact, once it started taking off at human-to-human transmission and with the uh, degree of contagiousness, it just took off. And I think what it shows is that the microbial world is not something we're in control of and that we're going to be I think some people think this is an anomaly. This is something that uh, it is unique. And we'll talk maybe about that, how unique this is in in, in, a point in, our, in our modern history. But I think we need to understand that the microbial world is constantly changing and uh, we're never in control of it. And so I think what we're experiencing today is something that we're going to be changed by and perhaps uh, prepared better for in future cases. But this uh, respiratory virus is definitely unique in the fact that it is uh, entered into a human population that has very little uh, immunity to it, if any, and um, the response is therefore a, a rapid spread.
0: Yeah. What ways um, specifically is it different than viruses like SARS or MERS, or maybe people would even wonder about Ebola, which you know fairly recently was in the news because of its spread in Africa?
1: Well, I think that, again, the thing that we look at with the the, the coronaviruses is that the uh, whether it was SARS or MERS or the common cold or this one, this is a, a, a virus that's spread by respiratory droplets. So therefore the air becomes a vector and that's uh, air is everywhere and we all breathe it and we all breathe into it. And so that's a very unique uh, and important way that uh, viruses spread when they're spread by the respiratory droplet rate. Now we know that uh, this is a, has a significant contagion. It's not as contagious as measles. Uh, it's not as contagious as diphtheria in the in the past before we had the vaccine, but it is a virus that is novel to us. We have no vaccine. We have no natural immunity. And so it's spreading rapidly. Now, um, the Ebola virus, which is uh, the last time that when I wrote the book, that's what we were actually dealing with. And I brought that up in my book about how we respond to to uh, viruses and contagion, but it was Ebola at that time. And that's a very different virus because it spread through intimate contact with your blood. And so uh, the, the, the spread of it is not as fast. It's not, as, uh, it's not through the air. However, it, had, it has a high, high mortality rate uh, upwards of 50 to 70%. So that has its own um, ramifications. And we dealt with that in a different way, but that one uh, couldn't spread as rapidly as this one because it wasn't airborne.
0: So every day, it seems like, as you mentioned already, we're, we're just bombarded with news about, you know, the latest stats on the number of infections in the US and around the world. And we're recording this interview on Tuesday, March seventeenth, And just yesterday, the White House released these new guidelines for the next 15 days, which includes a lot of specific recommendations for how to best slow the spread of this virus. And my guess is that by the time this interview airs, there may be even more press conferences with more information and recommendations. And I think for the average Christian, you know, at their home right now, this constant influx of information can really breed almost a sense of uncertainty and maybe a fear that we're actually missing some critical bit of information. We're not totally up to date and that we might need to stay safe or keep our family safe what would you say to the person who's feeling that way right now?
1: Well, <clears throat> I wonder if it would be helpful if we tried to put this in the context of uh, maybe how the, how the church has responded historically to uh, contagious disease. Because in a sense, if we are uh, the people of God and we are trying to you know, know what time it is and how to respond to the time, then I think we could gain from thinking about how the, the church has traditionally thought of. Um, contagiousness and contagious disease and I think what I'd like to suggest for our our conversation today is that uh, for me and for others who uh, are trying to follow the the Lord in their life that traditionally uh, Christians have often in the history of the church thought of a contagious disease as a test and if we are to think of this as a test it helps us to begin to put it in a different a different category and I think that uh, certainly in the early centuries, many people have already wrote about how the early church responded to the plague in the second and third century. And uh, they saw it clearly as a test of their faith. How would they respond and how, whether they would respond in love and faithfulness or how, whether they would respond without trusting in God. And if any, many of us who have looked at what they've done would say they passed the test really well. But I think that this story of contagious disease, which has been with us since the beginning of time and will always be with us. For the church, we have to say, well, how are we responding to this test? And one of the things that's unique about a contagious disease is that it changes how we look at the other person. And that's why I think it's so Uh, critical that we have the healings of Jesus in the Bible about leprosy, because that was a really critical uh, lesson that we were learning, because we were watching how Jesus was, was interacting with a contagious disease that many, many people were afraid of. And I think that when we look at Jesus' response to leprosy and the early church's response to contagious disease, we say, how is it that we can respond because the test is are we going to respond in love and faithfulness or are we going to respond in fear and isolation
0: hmm yeah i think sometimes that's that's something we kind of miss about the the gospels and jesus's uh, interaction with people who had leprosy i think maybe we can miss the the fact that leprosy was highly contagious and that it was there there it wasn't purely kind of religious or ceremonial reasons for excluding lepers from the normal community, but that actually there were kind of safety concerns there.
1: There were certainly, and certainly in the Old Testament, there were hygienic practices around that. But I think when we see Jesus uh, acting towards the, the leper, and, you know, he didn't have to heal by touching. And yet, by the fact that he did touch, it argues that somehow, when we deal with people who are potentially contagious, there's a risk we're gonna take if we're gonna be able to love that you really can't love faithfully if you're not willing to take risk. Now, how do we judge that risk? And I think we can further that conversation. But if we don't at least acknowledge the fact that the only way to love faithfully is to take risk, then we're not gonna even be able to get started on the conversation.
0: Yeah, this this current situation has, I think in a uniquely powerful way, raised to the forefront of our minds the social impact of our health. We see very clearly right now how our decisions related to our own health can have an impact on other people. How how do we see that specifically at play with COVID-19, and what advice would you give specifically to Christians when it comes to thinking about how they can practically love other people in the midst of this pandemic?
1: Well, let me suggest that um, one of the things we can do first before we decide what our path might be is to is to look at the reactions that we're seeing around us, to ask if those are faithful reactions or are those fearful reactions or um, other kinds of reactions. And it's interesting because I think that when you watch, uh, when you read about how, how different societies have responded to contagions in the past, there's almost a, a universal in the particular that in every situation there's common reactions And the majority of people are not reacting in the loving way. Uh, Let let me uh, try to simplify it in this sense, that, that right now, if you watch how people are reacting to the virus, there's two main ways. Now, I realize that there's a lot of subtleties in between and people jump back and forth, but there are two main ways. And what's interesting is how extreme they are. Because one of the ways that people are responding is to be, I would call it nonchalant about it, somehow they're saying something like, this is not very important. This is nothing but an inconvenience. Uh, this is something that's bothering my schedule. Uh, this is something that really should not get in the way. And uh, it's just an accident waiting to go away, and I'm just gonna try to wait it out. And I, I, I if you don't mind, I, there's, this, uh, there's this wonderful passage in uh, Albert Camus' book, The Plague. And if every, anybody has time, and I feel have a lot more time in the next few weeks to read, Uh, people's reactions to the plague, they should read his book. But one of the reactions is the reaction of the townspeople when the city of Oran first gets uh, evidence that there's a plague and it's not even yet in quarantine. And he said this about the townspeople. He said, our townsfolk were not more to blame than others. They forgot to be modest, that was all, and thought that everything still was possible for them, which presupposed that pestilences were impossible. They went on doing business, arranged for journeys, and formed views. How should they have given a foot to anything like plague, which rules out any future, cancels journeys, silences the exchange of views? They fancied themselves free, and no one will ever be free so long as there are pestilences. And if you think about that, you think that I see some people reacting in the sense of, what an inconvenience this is, and I'm going to have to put up with this for how long until I can get back to my normal life? And so that's in a sense people are almost caring too little and maybe even not even respecting some of the um, duties and responsibilities they have as uh, as members of the community to try to protect others. So I think there is that reaction and we should see that because it's always there when there's a plague. I think the counter reaction is the one that ex- has excessive fear about the uh, the presence of this virus that uh, is, is, is uh, able to kill people. And I think that you see a lot of that in, in people's responses, there's a great deal of fear and anxiety. And that I think is something that uh, the people of God can look at and say, now, is that the response that I want to have? And do I have that response? And I think you have to explore yourself a little bit to say that, do I have that response? Because I think everybody's a little more vigilant is even as they pass someone by, they're seeing that person not as a human being, but as, as a potential source of contagion to them. And so there's a fear factor that's playing out. I think that honestly, there's always been there's always fear when there's contagion in the in the environment. Uh, I I think that it's a question though of how do you deal with that fear and is it realistic or is it free floating and you've lost it. Uh, the thing that's unique about our modern society because we've never had a virus. The last time we had a virus like this was 102 years ago in 1918 with the Spanish flu. This was a, a much different society. I mean, it might be called an early modern society, but it was before the age of antibiotics. And so that flu spread in, in an extremely rapid way and killed many, many people. 102 years later, well, we did. most of us don't have a personal experience of that. So this is a new one for us. But for us as an American society and for many in the modern West, this is a real a disturbance to our well-being because we have lived for quite a while thinking that we are immune to this kind of stuff, that we have a sense of security and a sense of confidence about our lives that this doesn't make sense to us. That And in a sense, we want to push it away. And we want to say, this is not the way our life is supposed to be. There's something wrong with this. And so we have an excess fear of it because we have never, ever dealt with anything like this. In a sense, we've been in the process of denying death for, for many years, because we have been able to keep it hidden away through our capabilities in society to uh, stay healthy and stay well. And yet this is a shock to our system. It's almost like we've been floating in a balloon and we've been, it's been popped and we've hit the ground. And I, that's what I see is a, a great deal of fear and uh, underlie it. And I, I could probably name it um, and maybe explain it later, but it's really the fear of death that is is before us. And that's where I think then the Christians say, hmm. Do I have that same fear, and, or do I know something that others don't know that would change how I think about death in this situation? Yeah.
0: Well, can you elaborate on what are some of the things um, about the, the medical system and technology and you know uh, prosperity, really, that we enjoy in the U.S. and maybe in the West broadly that you think has contributed to uh, this, this sense of shock that something like this could happen to us?
1: Well, I think that because we have for so long, um, well, basically for many of us, we have lived in a modern society. I would say since that that epidemic of 1918, these last 100 years has been the most incredible growth of our medical capabilities and the possibilities of delaying death, denying death, uh, conquering disease that has ever been before. But what that's produced uh, is sort of an... uh, a false ability that we can deny death, that somehow we can exclude from the fabric of our normal life any evidence of decay or death or helplessness. And we've done that in a lot of different ways. And so many ways, uh, death is something we don't even think about. We don't see it even as a necessity to be accepted, but more as an accident to be avoided. And so when something like this comes to play, it's a shock to our system. It's even something that we get angry about and think, who, who, how dare someone disturb our sense of well-being? Now, I also want to add, as I'm saying this, that this is a unique perspective of only certain people in our, in our society, in our world. There are many people in other parts of the world that this is not a shock to them at all. They, they have they, the, the presence of death is, is a part of their lives every day, and this is just another added danger. But for many people in, um, in the modern West who have enjoyed many of its fruits, They have, somewhere along the line, thought that maybe they don't have to deal with death. And all of a sudden, it comes knocking on our door or jumps in through the window, and we're shocked by it. And I think for many, they respond in excessive fear because they have never had any ability to even contemplate this possibility.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of this line that I found really, really provocative in your book. Uh, You write, modern medicine looks increasingly more like the pursuit of happiness and control of the future than the cure of sickness and the care of health. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think that's that's one of the themes that I explored a lot in the book. And I think that's where I see uh, this anxiety is that people have often believed that somehow convinced themselves and it's it's clearly a delusion, but we have convinced ourselves that we are in control of our lives. And there are many things that make us think that we're in the driver's seat, that we have control of our lives. Because for most of us, we have food, we have clothing. Uh, it's only when there's a threat to our health, and in societies like ours, do we actually begin to wonder if we have control. And uh, for the most part, then we become very dependent on the medical system to deliver us from those uncertainties. But the reality is that we have great capacity. But the hardest thing for us to realize is that we are still limited people. We still are creaturely people who who still have to deal with suffering, still have to deal with disease, and still have to deal with death. And even though we have much less than in prior societies, we have so many more tools to respond to it in positive ways. The idea that we don't have to deal with it is, is a delusion that has caused us to be uh, increasingly anxious whenever that um, sense of security is threatened, and uh, when I wrote the book a few years ago, I could see it from all kinds of activities that I saw already in society. And so, I guess when this happened, it didn't surprise me that we became so anxious because it's the the the, the program was set for us to be anxious because it was just there underneath a very thin veneer of a sense that we were controlling everything.
0: Yeah, in your book, you highlight how. With more control and information related to our health, uh, we can ironically find ourselves more worried. And you write, how quickly the power to control an unpredictable future and the great possibilities to maximize health can transform our joy and hope into calculation and concern. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Right. I think that uh, one of the things that we... Uh, see, is that when we feel more vulnerable, we tend to turn to those things that we feel have the most likelihood of success and security for us. And so, while many of us will uh, maybe haphazardly trust medicine and techniques uh, in our day to day life, it's when we feel more vulnerable or insecure that we, uh, we grab for uh, something that says this is certain. And so, that's how, in a sense, we've begun to look at factual information almost with an excess dependency like yes this this information that we have does provide useful information it does suggest associations that if you do this this is more likely to happen than if you don't do that but we want to know is if i do this will this for sure happen and that's not what a lot of our evidence shows us it shows us some of the good associations that take place that if you eat well and uh, exercise, you're less likely to have a heart attack. But then don't be surprised if you do all that and you still get a heart attack because there's no guarantee. And I think that's the thing that disturbs us. And we want to have facts be more, more sure, more 100%. And some people, one of the philosophers I've read, Augusto Del Noche talks about the coercive nature of fact, that somehow we then, when we get into that state of fear, we look for facts and evidence almost, and it forces us, It like it binds us, it makes us something that we then have to obey as if it's going to guarantee an outcome. And that's an interesting challenge because most objective scientific information is not that sure, and so we need to know with what level of assurity it exists and then how to act reasonably with it but not expect it to guarantee our safety.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's like we have this expectation that science and the medical field can deliver us certainty if we just follow these prescriptions uh, then then the outcome is is for sure but I think situations like this they, they really confront us because we see that there is no guarantee in any of this and there never was uh, but sometimes we can just feel uh, that more that more painfully in times like these I think
1: right now I'm going to make sure that I am uh honest to my profession and and also reveal the the great uh, uh, belief and uh, and confidence I have in the medical profession to do good. Right now, with this uh, context of having, for many people, just taking it too nonchalantly or just taking it as a distraction or a disturbance or something that makes them, uh, just gets in their way, or excessive fear, somewhere in between those two reactions is something that should be the middle ground that I think those of us who follow Christ, Christ is the one who can help us hold intention a, a care for this world, but not too much care for this world, like not to care too little and not to care too much, that somehow through Christ we can find a balance between caring for this world, but also believing in the world to come. And I think we have that unique ability to find that balance. One of the ways that we do that is to take advantage of facts. And there are some good facts that we should take note of here for this current virus because it helps us to act faithfully and responsibly. So if I was to look at this virus, I would say that, you know, again, think of what we know now, what we didn't know 100 years ago or even 200 years ago about the microbial world. We know so much about it now. So we have so many good facts for us to make good decisions on. So when I think of like how I should be afraid of this virus, the questions that come to my mind are, well, if I get exposed, what's my risk of getting infected? Well, it seems like, and nobody knows with exact surety yet, that there's a significant chance you're going to get infect- infected if you get exposed. So that's something I need to note. Then the second question I have to ask is I deal with how my fears is, what is my risk of getting sick if I get infected? Well, that still has, there's still a significant amount of that, I think, though that does depend on your age, because it seems like the young ones uh, almost don't get infected, don't, get infected but don't get sick. And I do want to say, as we think about the the scariness of this virus, I hope we don't stop and don't forget to stop and give thanks, that this virus is leaving children mostly alone. Can can we not thank God for the fact that our children are mostly safe from this virus? That's a remarkable thing. So I know that, you know, that uh, if I get exposed, there's a good chance I might get infected. If I get infected, there's some significant chance I'll get sick. But then the last question is, what is the risk of me dying if I get infected? And that's where then it gets down to the real nitty-gritty because really, ultimately, we're fearing death in all this. And the, the facts of, the, of this up to now are, yes, it seems to be more lethal, higher mortality rate than the flu. Though, of course, that might change the more uh, cases we find and, and the number that we, because if we're not case finding enough, we don't know how many people necessarily were sick that got there, but we always are recording the deaths. So right now we're looking at maybe somewhere between a two a 4% um, death rate, but that's so dependent on your age. So that if you're less than 60, you have a less than 1% chance of dying if you get sick. Now, if I look at those facts, and I'm trying to deal with my fear, the first thing I say to myself is, that means that if I get sick, somewhere between 98 to 99 times out of 100, I'm going to get better. Well, if I think that, then what I should think is that maybe this virus is more dangerous, it's much more likely to hurt or harm someone else rather than me. And if I have that thought, shouldn't that then make me start to think about how to be thinking about others rather than myself? And I think that the facts actually can help us to do that, that if we look at those facts and we think of our age and we think of these, these, these um, risk factors, we can say, yes, there's risk. I can't possibly reduce my risk to zero. In fact, that's, that's like living in a, in a world that doesn't exist, even though many Americans have convinced themselves they live in that world. But I can think about others and the others that I should be thinking about are the elderly, and the poor, because the poor always take a greater burden of disease when there's contagiousness because of their living situations, because of their uh, less nutritional status, because of um, often underlying conditions like respiratory and heart disease. But think if this virus gets into Africa with their reduced infrastructure for health care, the numbers of people that crowd together, their, their their less ability to have personal protective equipment. We should be thinking about others and I think that's something the that facts help us to do. Uh, I, I want to. I, that doesn't overcome all fear. Is something that is not rational. So even though the facts can make us think outward, I think we're going to have to do more work to actually be outward-looking people. We're going to have to do some inward work. But I think that the facts support us thinking as to people who are outward-looking and trying to serve others.
0: Well, and one of the things that I think many people have observed, and and many many of our listeners have experienced personally, is just how When we work to focus on other people rather than just ourselves, when we intentionally set our minds on others and their good and and pray for other people, um, that can often go a long way to starting to alleviate our own worry and our own fears and anxiety. Have you seen that to be the case in your own life?
1: Well, I think that when we think about uh, serving others and how often that helps us to deal with our own fears, I think what it means is when... Whenever you're sick and alone, and this is one of the things we have to look at when we look at contagiousness, how one of the one of the treatments or one of the uh, programs or therapies is isolation. but isolation is something we can only do for a little while because ultimately that's not healing to the person and I think whenever we're sick and lonely, we know that if we can go if we have enough energy if we're not so sick that we can't get up and out and we can do that safely without hurting anyone else, that by serving another person, it always seems to help us to. Uh, overcome and deal with our own uh, vulnerabilities and and weaknesses. And I think somehow that common vulnerability and sharing it with someone else is at the core of why coming together in suffering and uh, helping others is so good for our souls.
0: Mm. So what then practical advice would you offer to listeners right now in in our current situation that we're facing when it comes to actually loving other people, reaching out to people, thinking about others first? What might that look like uh, today?
1: All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that you're gonna say, but that's that's not what I asked. I asked practical. But I think that before I answer, I have to say this: that I know many people who know the facts of this disease, and uh, are actually uh, quite well uh, educated and uh, in Christian truth, and yet they seem to still be overwhelmed by fear. And I think that if we're going to be practically doing good, all of us are going to have to take this time to do a little bit of inward work, we really have to go inside and say, what are we really trusting with our lives? Because unless we take our fear and place it before the risen Lord, because again, our faith is in a risen Lord who has conquered death. So if we, but the question is, it's it's sort of a thing that I guess what I'm arguing is, this is, I think... More than practical, it's essential that unless we take our doctrines, what we say about trusting God and actually put it into our, that we actually are trusting him, but the way we think and act, we're not going to be able to do good. And so I think for me, I see that when Christ came, he came to deliver us from the fear of death. And it's very clear that he didn't come, uh, come to deliver us from death so it's not so much that we're he delivered us from death he delivered us from the fear of death and that fear is something that can enslave us i, I always think of hebrews chapter 2 where he says that he came and Uh, took on our flesh so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So it's really critical that we get that part of our theology straight, that Christ came as a light into the darkness. And the darkness is defined by fear. And he came into that shadow of death and he said, I'm a light and if I've come into the world as a light, whoever believes in me does not remain in darkness. And so we have to say, do I trust God with my life? so that I can go forward out into the world with calculated risk. Because again, you're not gonna go out into the world and say, oh, I just learned all the facts, so this couldn't possibly hurt me. Well, we don't know that. I hope if anyone's ever heard me say this, this thing, I've got facts for you to give you a guarantee that that's never what I said. We have facts to give us a lot of confidence that we can go out and help others, but we still have to deal with our fear that we are going out as agents of the risen Lord to share his love, and it's because we have been delivered from the fear of death. If we have that, I think we can go out in a lot of practical ways.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what might—assuming somebody, a Christian listening, uh, is doing that heart work to to really embrace that mindset, that confidence in our risen Savior, what might it look like for them to then practically love uh, people in their church, or their neighbors, or elderly people in their community who can't you know, leave their homes right now because uh, it's too dangerous for them. But what are some ideas that you would have for how they could actually uh, live out that love towards others?
1: Right. Well, I think that um, there's two levels at which we are being invited to uh, show care responsibly to our neighbor these days. One, and this is the one that's kind of hard because it's actually somewhat in a co- contrary to our feelings of what it means. But one of the ways we love, and if this is something we can only do for a while because I don't think we can isolate people for so long, but one of the ways is to stay out of people's way when we're sick. And so for a lot of people, that's going to be a challenge. They don't want to stay indoors when they're sick. It's, In fact, I would argue that when you do that, when you stay inside because you're sick and you self-isolate yourself so that you won't infect others, you're enduring a suffering that really is centering you on the love of God because you are doing it for the love of others And so I think that's one of the things we do is that we do not go out and put other people at risk because when we're sick. Now, if we're when we're not sick and we don't think we're contagious because we have no evidence to to think that we are. Well, then we should be looking out in our community and saying, okay, who are those that are most likely to be harmed by this disease? And certainly, as you already mentioned, there's the elderly. And so we're not going to want to invade their space right now, because we're trying to respect the the civil authorities here. But we do want to say, do you have a need for food? Maybe we can go get it for you. The other thing we can serve are those, because we haven't even talked about the economic uh, burdens that people are experiencing because of the uh, commercial uh, interests that have had to change because of all these closures. So some people don't have, uh, their children are out of school, maybe they don't have work so the question is, can you share food with people who aren't able to buy things they've not been able to buy? Or can you, when you're caring for your own children, add a couple of other children? Again, you have to keep this, this, the group small so that your neighbor can go to work because their kid is no longer in school. So I think of those things. And then I hope that all of us will always remember the poor because... That's, that's, a, that's something, you know, God, that's one of the cores of our biblical faith is that God has chosen to care and, and side with the poor and the vulnerable. And so right now, as I take care of my patients who are homeless, as I think of the spread of the disease in parts of the world where they have much less infrastructure, we need to think about how to perhaps share resources because we're not going to hoard resources when we're not, when we've gotten over that fear. And so we're going to think. well, maybe I don't need as much. Maybe I can share this uh, clothing, this food item. Make sure that we're not using uh, personal protective equipment that's becoming rare and using it when we don't need to use it. There are so many ways we can say, I don't need these things. Someone needs it more.
0: Yeah, that's so helpful. Um, it makes me think of something you say in your book. You make a distinction between viewing health as a possession versus viewing it as a gift. And that kind of changes how we think about our health and how we think about even risks to our health and loving others. So what do you mean by that distinction and why is it important for us to remember, maybe especially right now in the midst of this COVID-19 virus?
1: Well, I think that, again, it goes back to that issue of um, control versus vulnerability. And I think that for most of us in a, a world where we seem to have a lot of power over our lives. We do tend, without even necessarily conscious thinking of it, that we control our health and that it's something that we deserve to have. And if we do all the right things, we will have. And that's why we've talked about already how shock is when we lose it. So that's when it says a possession, when it's something that you can manipulate and control. And actually, like your your, your if you think of your hands, that your hands are, are holding it tight and you're squeezing it. But that's the problem with things that are alive. You can't hold them tight. You have to open your hands. And so that's why I try to uh, play out the theme is throughout the book that we have to think of health as a gift because it's something that's given. It's not something we deserve. We don't all have the same amounts of it, but the amount that we have is something that we receive as a gift and therefore we nurture it. But why do we nurture it? Well, because we know that we nurture it in order to uh, love God who's given it to us and to nurture so that we can love our neighbors more effectively. And that's why we nurture our health. It's not something that we nurture for our own possession so that we can look better or live longer or be stronger, but it's for the good of others. And so it takes basically the gospel message of Christ and saying, how do you use your health as a gift and not as a possession?
0: Yeah, I love that you, you refer to health as a precious endowment. And I love that word choice, endowment, because it does get at the the idea that we've been given our health as much as we have, and as long as we, we have to live, uh, we've been given it so that we can then use it to love God and love others, to, to glorify God ultimately. Uh, I think that that's a helpful helpful way of thinking about our lives that I think often it is easy for us to forget and, and not think that way.
1: Right, and, and I think that also um, it, 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 it's required that we also say that when we speak about health— we're not just speaking of physical health, because we know that health is a word that's meant to describe something much larger, something that includes our our, our whole embodied selves, our, our soul and body united. in 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 in, in and, and That is what we're looking for is the health of that uh, of our embodied souls. And so, in that sense, sometimes what we do may be a risk for our bodily health for the sake of our spiritual health. And people have been doing that throughout the ages as as through acts of love. And I'm just saying that in some of these circumstances that may come up, I mean, I've described the facts of the virus right now, but let's not uh, sugarcoat and say something like peace, peace, or there is no peace. We are going to be dealing with a a, a serious change in our world uh, uh, over the course of the next few months. Many people will, there'll be much suffering and sickness and death and, In a sense, we have to understand that as part of the reality we're facing, but we're always thinking about how we can live our lives for the full health of ourselves and others, and that includes our spiritual health.
0: Um, I wonder if, as we, we come to a close here, what final word of encouragement would you offer to the person listening right now who, despite all that you've said up to this point, still is struggling in their heart with an intense fear, who maybe maybe feels overwhelmed with anxiety about the future, uh, whether that's related to their own health or maybe even more so the health of a loved one. Uh, What, what would you leave that person with today?
1: Well, I think that I would try, I would say two things and I would hope that this is for both the person you said, you mentioned the one who's still dealing with high anxiety, but also for everyone who's entering into a phase of life they've never experienced before. Because this is a unique moment in the history of, the, of, of, our, of our world as a, as a modern society. And I don't know if you're feeling this, Matt, but this virus is potent for a lot of reasons. It's potent biologically, but it's not really the most potent virus you've ever dealt with. But it's probably more potent psychologically and socially, and you alluded to that earlier about the social effects of this virus, that it's probably more potent psychologically and socially than any virus we've ever known. I mean, I don't mean to be flippant, but I mean, this is March 17th and the bars are closed. And, um, you know, March Madness is March Sadness. And, you know, for NCAA tournaments to be canceled and whether you love hockey or golf or basketball or going to movies, I mean, all of a sudden the world has been put on pause. And this is such a unique moment. And I think of something that, um, Soren Kierkegaard was, was uh, noted for saying that, you know, if God spoke into the world, would anyone hear him? And he said, no, they wouldn't because there's too much noise. And he said, what the world needs more than anything is silence. And isn't it interesting that it's almost like the world, the global community has to push the pause button and all of a sudden we're have this forced silence upon us. And I just wonder if this is the time in which people, whether you uh know the Lord but are anxious or don't know the Lord but have been but are but are wondering maybe my way of interpreting the world and what I've been trusting in is not working anymore, that this is a time maybe that God is speaking and you're hearing and realizing that there's something way more trustworthy in, in life than science or medicine or facts or anything else you're depending on. That in that void where you don't place any other idol, there's a God who's loving kindness reaches to the skies and whose faithfulness extends to us and who has a promise keeper who never gives up his promises.
0: Bob, thank you so much for spending some time today talking with us and uh, offering us uh, a true and sure hope that does go beyond uh, what science and what medicine can promise us, uh, the hope of the gospel and life with our God. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time today.
1: Thanks and good to talk with you, Matt.
0: That was Bob Cotillo on trusting God in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. To download a free copy of his book, Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age, please visit crossway.org slash coronavirus. That's crossway.org slash coronavirus. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.